This episode is sponsored by State Farm. You a small business owner looking for insurance that fits your needs and budget? Well, look no further than State Farm. State Farm agents are not just insurance providers. They're also small business owners who live and work right here in your community. They understand the unique challenges of running and protecting a small business. When it comes to small business insurance, State Farm knows what it takes. Create a plan that fits your needs and your budget. State Farm agents are ready to help you choose personalized policies that truly understand your business. Ensure your small business with a fellow small business owner. Talk to a State Farm agent today and get started on personalized small business insurance that fits your needs. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. Talk to your local agent today. This podcast is sponsored by Monarch Money. Are you saving to reach your financial goals? Reaching those goals isn't just about getting more money, but by managing what you have. And the best way to manage your money? Monarch Money. Monarch Money is a new kind of finance app that's intuitive, powerful, ad-free, and takes the headaches out of budgeting. Try it free when you go to monarchmoney.com slash podcast. Monarch puts all your accounts, investments, transactions, and finances at your fingertips. With a complete view of your finances, you'll gain insights on your spending and find new ways to save. Plus, Monarch lets you customize your dashboard, collaborate with your partner, set custom budgets and goals, and track your progress toward them. See why Mint users are turning to Monarch Money and loving it, and why the Wall Street Journal named Monarch Money the best budgeting app overall. Get a 30-day free trial when you go to monarchmoney.com slash podcast. That's M-O-N-A-R-C-H money.com slash podcast for your free trial. monarchmoney.com slash podcast. Hey there, this is a shout out to Clara in New Jersey and Lindsay in Maryland. If they weren't out there saving lives on the front line, I know they'd be stacking Benjamins. Live from Joe's mom's basement, it's the Stacking Benjamin Show. I'm Joe's mom's neighbor, Doug, and welcome to National Zoo Lovers Day, which is a great holiday for us because, as you know, this basement is a zoo on a daily basis. For example, get today's three-ring circus. First, we'll welcome the founder and CEO of Edgeworth Economics, a guy who knows how to find the lies hidden in charts and graphs that all the financial companies use, John Johnson. Luckily, no political candidates ever lie about statistics, so hashtag Doug 2020, am I right? And in our headlines, how will small businesses survive during coronavirus? One Shark Tank shark says most of the companies that have appeared on the show won't. We'll dig into why. And of course, as always, the best exhibit in the zoo will be my amazing trivia. And now, two guys who are the world's worst zookeepers, Joe and O-J-J-J-J-J-G. Never wanted to own a zoo. Who knew that this place was going to... It's like my house is a zoo sometimes. I've been to your house. Your house is a zoo. Hey, everybody. Welcome to the Wednesday morning zoo or afternoon or evening zoo, depending on when you're listening to this. I'm Joe Salci. I average Joe Money on Twitter. And across from me, the guy who's not the fake OG on Twitter, it's the OG OG. You were the OG OG. They made a show about me on FX. Tracy Morgan played me. Did a good, fair representation, I think. He's very funny. Yeah. Well, I mean, it was 
basically my life in a nutshell. So I was really honored that they, uh, they took some little liberties here and there with some of the details, but, um, you know, it's, it's show business. Hey, if you're ready to pay off your student loans, we had good news on Monday's show, uh, but we've got more good news today because today's show is brought to you by Student Loan Hero. If you're ready to pay off your student loans, they will walk you through all of that. Make sure that you're up to date with all the government programs, all the refinancing opportunities. If you don't have a loan directly from the government right now, how to get lower payments, how to find forgiveness. That's all at studentloanhero.com. We got a great show today. We got John Johnson with us. Mentor mine early on, OG said, beware charts and graphs. And uh, people can tell you whatever they want to tell you using charts and graphs. And John's going to talk about all the lies. But first, we got a couple headlines for you. That ain't no lie. So let's get moving. Hello, darlings. And now it's time for your favorite part of the show. Our stacking Benjamin's headlines. Our first headline comes to us from The Motley Fool. as uh, written by Maury Backman. Is retiring in a year from now still possible? Not sure if you're getting uh, this question from clients now, OG, uh, but Maury writes, the COVID-19 crisis has sent the stock market on a wild ride, so much so that it plunged into bear market territory. More recently, we saw some recovery, but it's certainly too soon to declare the bear market's over and a bull market's underway. Of course, this is, it's sad because this is written just a few days ago, but last week it wasn't looking very pretty even after this. Was written. Let's go sideways, mm. up, down, up, down. All this volatility is enough to drive even the most seasoned investors crazy, but can it be especially tough on near retirees who may at this very moment find themselves wondering whether leaving the workforce in the near term is possible given what's going on. Then Maury writes, of course, anyone planning to retire in the next month or so, be wise to consider postponing that milestone to let the stock market make a full recovery. I wanted to stop there on wait for the stock market to make a full recovery because have you ever had a time when you really thought, well, this is the ideal day to invest in the stock market. Generally, every time I've had that thought, it's not the ideal day. <laughs> it's the exact opposite. When you're most concerned is probably the best time to do it. I don't understand what a full stock market recovery looks like. So first, if somebody was planning on retiring this month or next month, OG, what would you tell them? Would you tell them to, if they have enough money, go ahead and still do it? Would you tell them to keep working so that the portfolio heals a little bit? That's a really good question. You know, I would think that if you were, were thinking about retiring this year, you probably have started to put those plans into place before February and March and the nonsense that went on. And uh, one of the things that we talk about with our clients is making sure that you've got two years worth of uh, required distributions in cash leading into retirement so that if the market does go down 20 or 30%, you can draw from your cash and let your portfolio just recover during the next two year period, you know, because we're not trying to predict when the top happens or where the bottom happens, but if we give it enough time, it'll come back to even money. I heard this uh, quote the other day that I really liked and I've stolen it. We don't know where the next 25% market change happens. You know, is the next 25% higher or is the next 25% lower? We don't know. But we do know where the next 100% market change goes. And that's always going to be higher. So we want to be thinking long term. So if you're planning correctly, you probably are super nervous about the idea of retiring going into it. But think of it this way. The market's down 30%. What's the likelihood of a positive next 12 months after a 30% market decline? Pretty good. Pretty good, actually, all things considered. Yeah. 
Well, it doesn't. It might not be thirty percent higher. It might not be stellar, but, right? But it probably won't be lower in, in twelve months from now. I'll tell you from my perspective, it would take some really uh, strong intestinal fortitude to walk into your boss's office today and go, oh, yeah, sorry, uh, did you have that retirement paperwork? I'm going to submit that right now. I'm going now. today. <laughs> I'm out. Well, unless your boss really wants you to go, you know, maybe maybe your boss is, is thinking you could do him a favor by helping. But I would also think that if you tried to retire today, think about severance packages. I can't imagine a company going, oh, let's give Earl a huge severance package today. Uh, well, severance is not what you get when you retire. So, so no, that I'm would be saying if you, you took it, right? yeah, I'm, I'm saying if companies are starting to lay people off and you want to negotiate and go, Hey, let me go. I'll go forever. Just give me a severance and you know, I'll go. Yeah. Bye-bye. Oh, that's a good idea. I hadn't thought about that. Like if you were close, you were close enough. And if you wanted to do some good for the rest of the company, perhaps that's not a bad idea. I think about this from the perspective, then if you had your two years in cash that you talk about, well, then you're, then you're fine. This is why we talk about also when it comes to stock market returns, OG, it's so much better to do your assumptions with really low returns because, because if you used a really conservative number, you're probably not that worried right now. But if you had an incredibly aggressive number, you know, eight, nine, 10% on return for your investments, I think you're a lot more worried. Well, we talk about two different things. We talk about investment expectations and investment plans. I expect my investments to behave a certain way. You know, we we talk about the efficient frontier and asset allocation, diversification, and putting those things together and saying, if I do this the right way, my expectation is that these investments will perform in this way over this period of time, but I'm not going to plan on it. And I'm going to make changes to my investment expectations based on what's going on in kind of real time and that sort of thing. But my plan is going to be a much more conservative long-term trajectory why not set the game up to win? You know, if you can invest and say, well, I expect my money to grow at 10 because it's invested in stocks, but I'm going to plan on it growing at six. Yeah. That way, if it grows at eight and I'm wildly off, I'm still 2% ahead of the game in my plan, which yeah. is great. Yeah. Our second headline comes to us from Yahoo Finance. Barbara Corcoran. Yeah. Remember those? Yes. Barbara Corcoran from Shark Tank says majority of her Shark Tank companies won't make it through coronavirus. Imagine if you're one of the one of the companies that she's invested in. You wake up this morning, you open up your your browser and you see that your investor OG fairly certain you're not going to make it. How would you feel then? Yeah, you're not going to make it. Yeah. Well, I would be like the person who goes, "Well, <laughs> she must be talking about somebody else." Must be. Absolutely. Not uh, talking about me. Uh, Zach Guzman wrote this and says, as progress is being made on getting the roughly $350 billion in dedicated stimulus loans and grants to small business owners around the country, Shark Tank's Barbara Corcoran is warning that it might not be enough to prevent many beloved startups from shuttering amid the coronavirus. Speaking to Yahoo Finance on uh, Tuesday last week, the investor and entrepreneur highlighted the fact that businesses she's directly backed have already been forced to lay off between 25 and 30% of their employees in the past two weeks alone. That's a lot of people. And so unless something happens that's dramatic that turns this around, which we're all hoping for the stimulus bill to do that, that translates into a very high unemployment rate, she says. Every one of my entrepreneurs are planning to apply for help. I'm wondering how long the help will go on. So I was thinking about this. You're going to have... A lot of businesses not apply for the PPP just because they don't know it exists or they're for whatever reason. 
you're going to have businesses mm-hmm. that are going to miss the boat on that. Big mistake because that gives you two months of keeping the lights on and payroll for people, at least partially, right? But if this goes longer than two months, OG, I mean, banks are flooded with people trying to get their application in. Yeah, you know, not... <laughs> Withstanding the fact that the banks aren't even open, like you can't walk into a bank, you know, everything's done electronically these days and they're all closed because of you know what. Yeah. So there's a lot of uncertainty and people are trying to do the right stuff. But if you're a banker or if you're an executive at one of these institutions, you got to go a little slow and go, wait a second. I'm not just about to hand out $348 billion to just some guy that walks in the street and goes, yeah, my payroll was 200 million last month. What's the due diligence? What's the, you know, I mean, how long does it take you to get a loan on a house? And it's secured by a property. Like they send somebody out and go, yeah, there's a house there. Yeah. Yeah. It's got rooms and walls and lights and electricity, the whole nine yards. And they go, well, I don't know. You know, what are you going to give us for it? This loan is straight up. Well, how much do you want? <laughs> just walk in and you go, yeah, I, I, my payroll is 20 grand. They go, great. Here's 50. Good day, sir. Bam. There's no personal guarantee. There's no business requirement collateral. Who's left holding the bag? You know, so I decided to take the 50 grand. I don't pay any of my employees. I was thinking, though, if you can pay people for two months, that gets us through, let's say that check comes April 20th. You can hold on, let's say, to April 20th, and the check comes Mm -hmm. April 20th. So then you've got uh, April to May 20th. Now we've got till, till June 20th, covered by the government, if you get the PPP. How much longer past June 20th do we think this is going to go? Obviously, nobody knows. I do like, and I want to draw attention to something she says later in the piece, which I think is important, OG, whether you own a business or not. Barbara says, the smart ones are shifting their models. They're getting more creative, she said. The smart ones will come through, but the great majority of investments I made, I don't expect them to make it honestly through this trough. I just don't. Pivoting right now, this is the time, I think, OG, to really think strategically about your business. And if there's ever a time to not sit around saying who moved my cheese to quote the popular book, it's now. So you, that's a, that's an oldie, but goodie. Huh? The, well, but the cheese is moved. I mean, every, yeah. everything is moved. And the quicker you understand that and look at where the ball is, not where you wish it were, the better off you're going to be. Yeah. It's really kind of a challenging time for everybody. And I, I was listening to uh, Marcus Limonis, who's one of these TV personalities. He's the CEO of Camping World. He has that show, The Profit, on CNBC, probably one of my favorite kind of reality shows, so to speak. And he was doing a thing on Twitter and he was talking about this and looking at your business. And he's like, listen, maybe this is the wake up call that you need. Maybe this is the time to realize, hey, this line of business that I've been that I've been trying to do. Maybe this isn't the right business. Maybe I need to do something a little different. And it's a great opportunity to kind of do some soul searching around what is it that you want to do? And you strip away all the other stuff. If you're a restaurant owner and you don't have to deal with any of the stuff associated with a restaurant right now, you have no employees, you have no payroll, you have no food delivery coming in, no chefs, no recipes, no nothing. You can sit quietly with yourself and say, do I still want to be a restaurant owner? Like, is this what I want to do? And then either double down and commit yourself to it. Or, you know, like she said, that was the time to pivot. I mean, this is why those quiet times are so important. When I would have clients that wanted to meet in their kitchen at their house, I did it sometimes horrible. 
horrible meetings when you compared that to coming into my office where we've got the door shut, we've got some music on, they're in a space that is designed specifically for us to have that conversation. And we're away from the hustle and bustle, away from the family. And all we're doing is planning, like having that quiet time. I think no matter what you're doing is so important. Yeah. And now I think it's more important than ever. What's the phrase? Uh, everybody needs to meditate 30 minutes a day. Unless you're really super busy, then you need to meditate two hours. For two hours, yeah, right. Maybe that's our first takeaway from this. Our second takeaway back from the first piece. Thinking about retiring right now? Depends on how conservative Do you it. are. Do it. Do <laughs> it. I double dog dare you. John Johnson is a guy that I'm super excited to talk to because whenever I see I see literature from financial companies now, the first thing I always look at, OG, is how are they trying to show this data so it's in the best possible light? Exactly. And then yep. the second question is, what data are they not showing me? And I try to think critically about what data I'm not seeing. And in so many cases, you end up seeing that maybe a financial company, a new fund, uh, compares itself to like the Lipper 64% large cap stocks, 21% international, 6% commodities, like this weird, this weird thing. Look at how it did versus the benchmark. And then I look at the benchmarks, this weird thing. I'm like, is, is that even a thing? <laughs> well, apparently for this, it is. It's crazy some of the stuff that companies do. And John Johnson has a long history of helping people and companies go through data. He's an expert on interpreting data. He is taught at Georgetown University, been published in many, many books. We're super excited to talk to him. John Johnson on today's show. And here he comes down to the basement, the guy who's going to explain statistics to us. John Johnson's here. How are you, man? Great. Great to be here. It was great to talk to your mom upstairs. And uh, she likes data more than I thought your mom would. <laughs> she does. Everything is fractions, like how many cookies, you know, uh, will Doug eat or things like that. Yeah, it's, it's crazy. You know, and I didn't mean to start with this question, but how did you get interested in your field? It's always interesting to find somebody who does what you do, which is such a unique, uh, unique field. Yeah. So it's interesting. You know, you're not going to be surprised that as a kid, I was pretty into math <laughs> and numbers and things like that. Computers, you know, my Atari 800 when I was like the only kid in school who had that back in the 80s. I actually thought my career was going to be I was going to be the uh, most popular professor at the University of Illinois. And maybe I was for a short time, but uh, academia wasn't uh, practical enough for me. And so I kind of went into consulting and launched my career about 20, 25 years ago. And now I do a lot of different types of data work, consulting on different types of data, testifying as an expert witness on things involving data, just a wide, wide range of uh, data has kind of become my life. You know, uh, DeMaurice Smith, the executive director of the NFL Players Association wrote, I noticed the forward to your book, but I was thinking before I get to what he said, I was thinking you're talking about the wrong sport. It seems like a, a statistics guy would be a baseball fan. Well, actually, I am a huge baseball fan, and ironically, 
I try not to pay attention to statistics at all with baseball. Do you? Because I always, because I always say it's kind of like a postman taking a walk for his vacation. You know, it just doesn't make any sense. So, yeah, I pay attention, but I'm not actually into the saber metrics as much. I kind of like to enjoy the game and go with instinct and uh, basically betray everything I believe in every other aspect of my life. Well, it's funny, as we're recording this, uh, the NFL has released some changes. We're recording this a couple of weeks before it goes live. But he writes in the forward of his book that he didn't want the season to go longer back in 2010 because he said there's a 100% chance of injury in the NFL. And all longer season was going to do was going to make more injuries and increase the suffering of players. As we record this, I just read that the NFL is going to make the season longer. What do you think about that being different than what DeMarie Smith said at the beginning of your book? Well, I think, you know, um, you know, full disclosure, D is a good friend of mine. So I don't want to, you know, so I not that I've talked about this, but per se, basically what I would think is a lot of I'm not sure the attitude about what the injuries would be would be different. I think it's more about, OK, could the players get certain concessions, pay whether it's expanded rosters. I'm not too familiar with what the new CBA is, but I think the idea was that if they were going to do it, they have to be compensated in some meaningful way for it because of that. I don't think it's that they believe that suddenly the 17th game would lead to more injuries. At the same time, you know, one of the things that was interesting at the time when we worked for the NFLPA is one of the most prevalent plays where there were injuries were the, the kickoffs where they run full speed ahead of each other. Yeah. And so our studies were part of why they moved the kickoff up so that people couldn't gain as much speed. So it's an interesting thing, but I know they're very serious about the injuries, but at the same time, they're also trying to figure out what's best for the players at all times in terms of the total package of compensation. I wonder if indirectly then you're, and I'm boring the hell out of people who aren't football <laughs> fans. So hang with me guys. We'll be, we're going to talk about financial companies here in a second, but I wonder if then indirectly your studies then are responsible also for the XFL's change where they put the players all forward so they can't get any running yeah. start. Yeah. I don't know. Sure. I can take credit for it if you want. <laughs> <laughs> I, would, I would think maybe, well, you will appreciate this. I had a mentor early in my career when I was with American express and he had a bunch of things that he taught us set rules. And I think rule number three, John was beware charts and graphs. Because in a chart or a graph, people can tell you whatever the hell they want to tell you. And I have to come clean, even though I was a fiduciary financial planner, I would use that to my advantage all the time. Mm. When there was something that I really wanted my client to do, I would make sure the graph started in the right place or that the chart showed the right stuff. I want to dive into that a little bit. How do financial companies use statistics to confuse us and get us to do what they want us to do? Well, look, I mean, there's a lot of different uses or abuses of graphs, charts, tables. So sort of one thing is just sort of the pure power of visuals, all right? Um, a study by Cornell shows that when a new drug, for example, was presented in text format alone, like here's sort of this claim, 67% of respondents believed this claim. If you compare that claim with a picture, a chart, 97% of people believed it. So the pure power of visuals are tremendous. And so that's just the first thing is that there's a reason why you see all these graphs. You see all these graphs because people think they actually influence people's opinions. So the first big thing, you know, and again, we're kind of in an interesting tumultuous time when you think about looking at a graph, looking at numbers is let's talk about investments. Let's talk about the stock market 
everybody's grasping as we've had some significant declines. I have no if, idea what you're talking about. Right, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> and so if I told you that, you know, let's just take a graph of the last five days and graphed out or, you know, where, as I said, when this airs, we're sort of in the middle of the beginnings of the coronavirus and sort of series after series of dramatic drops in the stock market. You might say, wow, what a horrible time it is. This We've lost so much value. If you did, by contrast, a graph where you looked out basically to 1980, you would see that the stock market still, even after the drops these last five days, has been just up, 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 up uh, for a very, very long time. So perspective matters a lot. And so one of the first tricks with graphs is what time period you're looking over could greatly influence, you know, oh, is this a good investment or a bad investment? Is this a good thing to look at or a bad thing to look at? Those are sort of one of the very first things I tell people is you have to look at the scale of the graph because that's the way people often mislead you. They can cut it in terms of the time. They can cut it in terms of the measure. How much do you look at it in terms of is it going up? Is it going down? Are they tiny little increments? Those are the types of things you have to really worry about. Well, it's funny to your point. So somebody might say the stock market's down 30% and they're right. And another person says, no, it's up 130% and they're right too, just looking at the time frame. Right. I mean, I, kind of another example similar is another type of financial investment is buying a home. Like I actually tell a story in my book about imagine you're, you know, you're going to buy a house and your father-in-law says house prices are down 20%. This is horrible. And you're like, no, no, no. They've been up 180%. You know, <laughs> what's the difference? It's the time frame. So thinking hard about what the perspective is on the data that's being put forward in any graph, one really easy way that people get manipulated is just sort of changing the scale. It's interesting. I would think then the scale that I want to look at is the scale of like the time until I need the money, I would think. <laughs> well, right. I mean, of course, when you're thinking about sort of, look, we all are sort of have biases inherently that we bring to the data. And I think that's actually another pretty important part of this. You know, if people are looking to numbers and data to justify a certain position they have, they can do things that will make the data look one way or another more favorable or less favorable. Part of why we try to be systematic in data analysis as sort of data scientists when we put forward statistical analyses is you kind of reveal all of the things that are underneath the analysis. What are the assumptions that you're making? What is the purpose of the analysis? Now, in the little graph, and not to pick on USA Today, but they have really cute little graphs on the front of their newspaper. You don't always get every assumption. You don't always get every single detail. And in fact, because of the way that we consume information, these constant sort of sound bites, it's often hard to sort of get to the detail you would need to make a meaningful conclusion. So I always tell people, if you're making an important decision, just don't rely on some graph you see on TV or in the newspaper. You really have to dig in a lot more. And I'm not saying you have to be a statistical expert to do that, but just ask some questions. And it seems like one of those questions uh, that I got from reading your book was asking what isn't what you know you talked just a second ago about this uh, what's what's not being presented what are they yep. what are they maybe hiding behind their back you talk a lot about cherry picking data which i found interesting and you use this great example of a restaurant owner saying hey we're packed for breakfast we're packed for lunch and then you look at, you look at the whole day and there's nobody in there the rest of the day so they pick just these two time frames and go yeah everything's great Right, exactly. I mean, cherry picking is sort of a, a pretty old uh, – <laughs> the idea comes from – you know, I always talk about, well, George Washington picking cherry trees, which actually I'm not sure was true. But the actual idea behind cherry picking is that if you go pick cherries, you want to look for the ones that are the reddest, the juiciest, and the ones that are kind of like 
ready to fall off the tree, a little black, you leave them on. You pick the ones that you like and you leave the rest behind. That's exactly what we do with the data when you cherry pick is you're picking the things that are the most helpful to your position and you're ignoring all the rest. And so there's lots of different examples of cherry picking, everything from as simple as you see a survey on TV, four out of five dentists prefer this particular gum. And then if you look at a little tiny print, it says out of dentists that prefer any type of gum. One of the ways you sort of spot cherry picking is often these numbers, two out of three, 33%. Anytime you see those things, you should at least look really, really closely to see what is the quote unquote denominator. What is it being selected out of? Because that's just a really big trick that happens. And I don't want to imply that people are always trying to mislead you, but cherry picking is a way usually where people are trying to make a point and they're just providing some half of the story. I've noticed uh, back when I was a financial planner that uh, mutual funds were very good at picking a weird index to compare themselves to when the fund wasn't doing very well. You must see that all the time, some comparison data, John, where, where they're comparing it to the slowest thing possible. Right. It's really interesting, actually. So benchmarking is sort of the idea in all of these things. Oftentimes, if you want to talk about something performing better, you need a comparator. You need something to compare it to. We think of that as benchmarking. That benchmark should represent what a average level of performance would be, should represent something akin to what would be the best comparator controlling for any other differences that are important. So, of course, if you see or you're trying to tout performance of a stock, of a mutual fund of any kind of investment portfolio, and you're comparing it to some very odd, either unknown or weird collection of other things, you have to really think hard about, well, what does that comparison actually mean? This comes up all the time, and not just in financial world, but in almost every area where we use data, what is the right comparison is really, really critical. It's funny how much this happens. You you have a great quote in your book. You reference the movie, Thank You for Smoking. And by the way, I have to tell everybody listening that if you've been seeing the, the movie, Thank You for Smoking, which has to be, what, 10 or 15 years old now? I it's a while. Think. Yeah. <laughs> it's not, not the most recent reference in our book. No. No, 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 but if people haven't seen it, they got to watch it. it. There's one classic scene where Aaron Eckert, he's... Um, what a lobbyist for tobacco and he's sitting at this bar with the lobbyist i think for guns and another one for what's the what's the third lobbyist you remember that scene i remember to say i don't remember what it is yeah yeah but some other vice uh, uh maybe it's alcohol alcohol i think, I think it is alcohol yeah. yeah and they're all sitting around having a drink talking about what a bad day they had but <laughs> so for people who haven't seen this movie it's both disturbing and hilarious but he says to his son, when you argue correctly, you're never wrong, which I think these companies are really good, John, at arguing correctly. Yeah, look, I think part of what people are trying to do with data and information, you know, whether it's marketing, whether it's sales, you know, they're trying to make the best case for their product, their service, their investment portfolio. So that doesn't mean that everyone is out there trying to always be misleading. I don't want to give the paint with such a broad brush because I think there is, you know, people that try to be honest with data. But I think oftentimes, even when it's not, it's hard to disentangle sometimes what is purely dishonest use of data. And what is just not knowing any better? Because, you know, lots of now you can just use data and computing. I mean, one of the biggest differences in the course of my professional career is the advances in computing power in all of the data software. You know, a lot of people who could never have run a data analysis 20 years ago can go on and pretty quickly put in some numbers and pop out a graph. And here it is. So it's not hard to do anymore. <laughs> and that actually does create, you know, 
in my role as an economist lingo, you know, low barriers to entry to use data. That doesn't mean they're using it correctly. And so there's always this interesting thing. Are people misleading intentionally? Are people misleading because they don't know better? But either way, there are certain hallmarks that I say you look for to see something is actually good data analysis. Careful sourcing, lists of assumptions, sometimes multiple scenarios. So you really understand what's going on. I think the more transparent an analysis is, the more confidence you can have that even if it may not exactly draw the same conclusion as the author, at least you know that, okay, I have a good enough sense of what is going on. I know what the point is that's being made. I've got two questions I wanted to ask you about that we haven't cut. Well, I got 50 questions I would ask you about, but two that I will. One is about sample size. You know, we'll have people come on from different financial companies and they've surveyed a thousand people or surveyed 1500 people. Is that an important number? It can be. I mean, we were talking a little bit before we got on the air about the presidential elections and polling. And, you know, this remarkable idea that we're about to have this explosion of presidential polls. And, um, you know, you're trying to predict the voting patterns of 170 odd million voters with 500 people. Now, part of the crazy power of statistics is that sometimes that's enough. That's what's amazing that you could ever get it right. But the problem is it's usually when you do these things, it's called drawing an inference. You have to know that it's not that I just get some number, 50%, 30%. It's that I have some confidence interval, what we call, you know, how wide is the sort of range in which I expect the answer to be in the entire population? So the point is, yeah, you can draw inferences from these tiny samples, but how precise you are, it's kind of like saying, well, I have a ruler and I might have something that's, you know, three inches, but what if it's 12 inches on each side? <laughs> and so that's really the important point is it's not just I got a number, it's how precise is it? The other thing I wanted to ask you about, and this is something that we see people mistake all the time, and you you really draw a line between these two ideas, correlation and causation. This is really plays huge, I think, in your book. Absolutely. And, you know, it is really one of the most powerful concepts. And people sort of know the trite. Well, correlation isn't causation as if they really understand it. But I always joke. I'm a trained statistician. I wrote this book. I think about these things all day and night. But it's still the case that, you know, like I'll watch an infomercial and hear some claim about something that says, oh, you know, this will uh, you can lose, you know, 10 pounds on the all apple diet. And I'm like, oh, that's really interesting. That's exciting. So we're all prone to it because it sort of reinforces our pre-existing beliefs. But the really important point is the existence of a statistical relationship, just finding something mathematically that two things are related does not mean that one causes the other. One of my favorite examples is the study that found that living near a Starbucks increased your home values. Now, that could be true, I guess, maybe if you have like coffee-loving people who are willing to pay more, but what if it's the reverse, that Starbucks strategically places their stores in the most expensive neighborhoods because that's where you're gonna pay, you know, five bucks for a latte. Again, once you start to look at the world through an eye of what's correlation versus what's causation, it really changes your view, it does make you a little cynical about data. But I think a little bit of cynicism isn't a bad thing in this world. No, I think just asking that basic question, could it be, I think is a yeah. great question to ask yourself. Yeah, I agree completely because what I always try to tell people when I give speeches, when I give talks, when I teach classes is you don't have to be a statistician to be a good consumer of data and statistics. But you do have to think a little bit more critically. I think there might be people listening to this, John, who are thinking, well, big deal. OK, I know a little bit more about statistics. But in the second chapter of your book, you show that sometimes this could be life or death. I mean, you talk about the Challenger disaster 
and about how just the questions they didn't ask were probably a big cause of why the challenger had the unfortunate ending it had. Yeah. I mean, it's actually an incredible story and that, you know, if you put yourself back in the time in 1986, you know, the real central issue had to do with something called O-rings and O-rings were sort of the plastic rings that go around the gas tanks that kind of kept the hot airs, the hot gases in from prevented the, the entire gas tank from exploding basically on the space shuttle. They really only had 24 hours to make a decision. They were going to fly the space shuttle at temperatures that were lower than they had ever before by about 20, 30 degrees. And so the engineers at NASA, at Morton Thiokol, were studying this data. Didn't have a lot of data, but they were looking to sort of see was temperature related to failures in these O-rings. And they looked at a data set and they sort of took all the failures and they looked at the temperatures where they occurred and they found there were failures at 70 degrees and 60 degrees, 50 degrees, 40 degrees. They couldn't really see any discernible pattern. And based on that data, they decided that it was safe to fly the space shuttle. But what they didn't do and what they excluded is they didn't include the data for all the times that the O-rings had not failed. And so when you added in the data for all the times the O-rings hadn't failed, suddenly what appeared to be no relationship at all, you could see that most of the times it didn't fail were at higher temperatures, which actually made it very clear there was a a relationship between lower temperatures and failure of the O-rings. And so that's the difficult story. You know, in the book, we actually have the data. We actually show you, and there you were a number of. It. Yeah, mean, it's really clear, and it's yeah. and again, these are brilliant people doing their best. They know the stakes, trying to make an intelligent decision, know something about data, but even they could be subject to that mistake. So the point is not to sort of point to the fact that these poor people made these the wrong decision, as much as even very experienced data people, if you ask the wrong question or use the wrong data, you end up with the wrong conclusion. As I saw that graph, I had this pit in the bottom of my stomach. It was horrible. Uh, Your company, Edgeworth Analytics, I would imagine people hire you guys for a variety of things. Tell me what the average company does that comes and wants you to do something for them. Yeah, we do a number of different types of things, you know, and it is really widely varied in terms of the types of consulting engagements. Basically, we are a full service consulting provider that tries to answer difficult questions that companies have. And that's could be everything from working for a retail establishment where they want to know, well, why is there, why are their sales down at a certain point in time to companies that have lots of issues with HR where they're worried about, well, why are we losing certain employees? Can you look at our employment data? Um, It's very, very varied. There's things like we did for the NFLPA where we sort of did a lot of the sports analytics. So There's really an endless stream of potential projects, but really at the core of it, the things that we do is we answer questions with data rigorously, but in a way that we can explain them. Because again, I'm a teacher at heart. Our data scientists are teachers at heart. That's really what it is we are selling to people is we want to help you answer your questions and think through the issues so you can be a better consumer of data, but also understand your the potential pitfalls, answers, problems that you're facing in the corporate world. We'll link to Edgeworth Analytics uh, and to your book from 2016, which, by the way, this is incredibly evergreen. This is stuff that people need to know when it comes to, to data. It's called Every Data, the misinformation hidden in the little data you consume every day. By the way, this guy named Seth Godin, is that how you pronounce that? Godin? That's it. Yep. No, no, I'm kidding. <laughs> I think 90% you heard of him. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I, I might be familiar. Uh, Seth on the cover says this book will make you smarter, faster. Please read it before making decisions or forming opinions of any kind. Thank you so much for helping us uh, wade through some of the reams of financial data. We're all presented with every day, John. I appreciate it. 
thanks for inviting me to the basement. I appreciate it. Hey there, trivia fans. Yeah, it's just me, it's your old friend, Joe's mom's neighbor, Doug. Same old, same old. Man, you know you are bored at home when you're celebrating National Zoo Lovers Day by finding everyone on our team a spirit animal. Hey, I just about got them all picked out. Uh, While I make the finishing touches, why don't you mull this one over? There's another moment in history that happened today. Which wonky artist who once had a piece of art get auctioned off for $179 million died today? That was kind of a downer there at the end, but that's a trivia question. Sometimes they're awesome. Sometimes they're this one. So I'll be back with the answer and my thrilling spirit animal reveal in just a moment. Well, if you've got somebody near you or you yourself are headed off to college, good news, you can actually calculate the ROI on college. And while an education isn't all about return on investment, there's so many aspects to your college experience. The one thing you don't want to experience is a big old debt hangover when you get done. So figuring out how you're going to pay for it ahead of time responsibly, no matter what your motivation means that you're going to start at studentloanhero.com. Or if you're somebody who's already been through school and realize that maybe you have debt and no real plan, time to get one. If you're ready to pay off your student loans, Student Loan Hero is there. You can get custom repayment plans today and see how you can lower interest rates, decrease monthly payments, and find forgiveness. So three different areas on the site, refinancing your loans. They go through everything from eight best banks to refinance and consolidate student loans in 2020 to lowering your payments with the ultimate guide to lowering your student loan payments to forgiveness. Even parent plus loan forgiveness is possible. They tell you how to get it. They also go through all kinds of calculators. So if you're looking at your strategy of paying for school ahead of time, all that is there, quizzes, all the different products that are available. It's all in one place at studentloanhero.com. Head there today, studentloanhero.com for more. Hey, trivia fans, guess who's back? That's right, the king of the jungle, Joe's mom's neighbor, Doug. Before we get to your trivia answers, time for my big spirit animal reveal. I know it's obvious to everyone, so to lead off this National Zoo Lovers Day, I'm just going to go ahead, begin with this little pearl. Of course, my spirit animal, a lion. Yeah, duh. Now, on to the rest of these yahoos. If Joe was an animal, he'd be an otter. I mean, the guy plays games like nonstop, and he's always social. Can't get him to shut up most of the time. It's just so annoying. Uh, and Joe's mom, she'd be, drumroll please, an elephant. A woman never, ever forgets. I swear you make a mistake or do something wrong in front of her, and she's going to bring it up like a 100 years later. And, of course, Len Penzo is a mole in that bunker. And uh, it, it, Paula Pant's a possum. Know why? Because even Reddit thought she was playing dead last week. <laughs> oh, uh, too soon? Yeah, maybe. Uh, and, and last but not least, OG would be a honey badger with that tough exterior and not really caring about hurting people's feelings. I mean, that guy just does not give a sh- about anything. Hey, you're going to bleep that, right, Steve? Yeah, all right, cool, awesome. 
back to the important part. Did I tell you I'm a lion? Rawr. Yeah, baby. Well, I'm not lying. That's actually the truth. But you know what I mean. <clears throat> yeah. <clears throat> okay. I think that was more fun in my head than it came out, but uh, you got to live with it. How long until this coronavirus thing is over? I'm just scraping the bottom for ideas right now. All right, let's get back to today's trivia. The question was this. Which wonky artist who once had a piece of art get auctioned off for $179 million died on this date in history? If you guessed Spanish artist Pablo Picasso, you'd be right. Can you believe that Pablo Picasso was worth between an estimated 100 and 250 million bucks back in 1973? That's like... 200 trillion billion dollars in today's uh, dollars. I mean, Joe's probably going to do that whole thing with the multiple of 11 or whatever he does. But anyway, I'm sure they had the exact number, but I rounded everything just to make it, you know, kind of like his art. By the way, his fortune then is the equivalent of Oh, actually, it's only like 530 million to 1.3 billion today. So, you know, no big deal. really. And with that, I got to hand it back over to these animals. See ya! Pablo Picasso. I don't mind being the honey badger. Have you seen, you've seen that video, right? <laughs> about the honey badger? Yeah. Getting what the honey badger wants? No, you don't know what I'm talking about? No. Uh, maybe we'll have to, we'll have to look it up and talk about it later. At some point. Yeah. But I don't mind being an otter. I was like the uh, otter exhibit down at the Detroit Zoo. It's a nice, nice arr, place. Arr, arr. Yes. Hey, let's uh, throw out the Haven Lifeline, OG, and tackle some of life's biggest and most important questions. Our friends at Haven Life Insurance Agency, they put what you value first. Ooh, uh, like going outside from time to time, you know, standing in my porch. Eating at a restaurant. Oh, wouldn't that be something? <laughs> be amazing. Sitting in a movie theater. Yeah, I can do without that for a while. But uh, yeah, you know, just... Interacting with other human beings. Besides the immediate family. It's your loved ones in your time, it says here, but I get where you're coming from, OG. That's why they've made buying quality term life insurance actually simple. Head to stackybenjamins.com forward slash Haven like now for a free quote. You'll find the application is super simple. It's online. OG and I are super used to uh, long, 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 long applications whenever we'd have clients apply for Life insurance, not the case with Haven Life. Policies also issued by their parent company, Mass Mutual, more than a 160-year-old insurer. It's not always, as you know, OG, not about being um, cheapest all the time. It's also about making sure the coverage is there when you need it. So 160 years old, a long time. And today we're throwing the lifeline out to Tabitha. Say hi, Tabitha. I have several old retirement accounts from previous employers. I know common guidance is to roll them over to your current employer or to an IRA. However, I've been hesitant to open an IRA because I have plans to do some Roth conversions in the future. I don't love my current employer's retirement options, but I wasn't sure if there still might be a strong case to be made to execute a rollover anyway. Also, I currently only have access to a 401k, but I previously worked for companies that had 403bs and 457bs. Can you roll over these types of accounts to a 401k? Thanks for the question, Tabitha. A lot wrapped up there. And let's start off with yeah, the that's a great question. Let's start off with the guidance she said. Most people say, oh gee, to roll it over to your new 401k or to roll it over to an IRA. Let's start there for people that don't know, because that is the common advice. What do you think about those two options? 
Well, generally speaking, you can do as good, if not better job by controlling your investment accounts in your own uh, retirement account than through your workplace employer. Companies are getting better at this because, you know, the recent lawsuits and litigation and stuff like that around kind of hidden fees and 401ks and things like that. But just remember, you're commingling your money technically with a whole bunch of other people's money. And while it's inexpensive, it's still an aggregate, a ton of money to manage, to do record keeping, to employ all the people that are necessary to keep track of that. And that costs money. And that money is either paid for out of your employer's pocket. It's not, or you're paying for it out of the assets of the investment accounts. So that's coming through higher fees or monthly withdrawals or something like that. And it's usually not a lot, you know, could be just a few bucks, but it's inefficient. You combine that with the fact that there's usually limited options in a in your 401k plan, and that generally tilts the scales heavily toward do-it-yourself. You have unlimited choices. Um, you can be in charge. I also like the fact that as you leave companies, you have this single dashboard with all the rest of the money. And if your company does have some good options in one area, you can use those options by themselves and then mold your IRA around it where you have unlimited flexibility. So as an example, right. I remember one of my clients back in the day had fantastic um, choices when it came to large company stocks, but didn't have anything good internationally. So if you looked at their this particular person's 401k, we were using almost all large company stock. Then you looked at their IRA, it looked like it was heavier international than it should be. But if you put them together we had the right allocation by using the best of both worlds. Right. All of that says, you know, probably best to do it on your own. The reason you don't want to have it spread out over a whole bunch of different places is just simply for inefficiency and you forget about it. There's just going to be overlap. There's going to be uh, underrepresentation in your investment plan. And I know everyone says this, it's not going to happen to me, but guess what? It happens to a lot of people. You forget about where money is. If you change jobs a lot, you forget that you worked at that one place for six months and you got $1,100 in that account. Smaller balances now, companies can just outright close and send you this cash. There's just a lot of reasons to make your life easier. Put it all in one place. Whether you put it in your own IRA or you put it in your workplace plan, it's entirely up to you. And here's the other side of this too. She said, well, I don't know that I want to do it because I might do Roth IRA conversions later on. That sounds very noncommittal. <laughs> and who knows what is going to transpire between now and whenever you get to doing that. But let's play that out. Let's say that you do open an IRA. You consolidate all your retirement plans, which, yes, you can do your 401ks and your 403bs and your 457 plans. Get all go into the same IRA. Into an IRA. I do, you can't take your 403b, though, Tabitha, and move it to a 401k. You cannot make that move because that was her specific question. You can't take that 457, though, and roll it to a 401k. Uh, you can roll them all to an IRA, but I don't think that you can take 457 rules and then bend them to 401k rules and 403b rules. Well, and I wouldn't want to do that anyway individually. Yeah. Here's what I was going to say. Put them all in an IRA, and then if down the line you decide to do non-deductible IRA contributions, if you make too much money and you can't just straight up do a Roth then you can take your IRA and put it into your 401k if you want at that point in time. So you don't have to let that potentiality be your issue. And I would just submit, if you're going to do Roth IRA contributions and you're trying to do this big convoluted backdoor thing, 
why not just do the Roth contributions in your 401k? You know, unless you're already maxing all that stuff out. If you're like, well, I've already maxed out my 401k. Now I've got another 6,000 to do. Okay, fine. But uh, I see a lot of people who get trapped by that because they read that one piece of, well, you can't do backdoor contributions. You can't do non-deductible contributions if you have an IRA. Oh, I don't want to do that. And then you go, well, but you're not even maxing out your 401k yet. You've got that whole bucket to fill up before you even have to worry about this other bucket. I think your life will be a lot simpler. Put it all in an IRA. If a year from now or three years from now or five years from now, it's better to be in your workplace plan, boom, put it in the workplace plan. You can always move it back and forth. That'll be a lot of paperwork, but you can do it. <laughs> Thanks for the question, Tabitha. You got a question for us? Head to stackybenjamins.com forward slash voicemail, and we will be very happy to answer your question. Great, great question, Tabitha. And one, I think that that is a question that- um, Yeah, a lot of people have. A lot of people, yeah. Applies to many of us. All right, that's going to do it for today. A couple cleanup notes before we say goodbye. Hey, thanks to everybody who's left us a review of this podcast. Mom uh, puts those on the refrigerator and someday, OG, when the Bridge Club comes by again, she'll be able to point them out. But she still likes to rotate them. So she still still need to send them in. Yes. Only the good ones. Yeah, keep it on, keep it on, keep it on. Check out the one she's got on the fridge right now. This one's from Becca B eighty nine. Whose mom would name them Becca B eighty nine? Becca, I feel bad for you. But uh, Becca writes financial podcast with the most middle aged man giggling, all hyphenated. If you're into that kind of thing, I guess I am. Anyway, this crew has become my replacement for real life friends while I hide from coronavirus. Lots of love from Charlotte, North Carolina. Man, we had fun in Charlotte, Becca, when we were there with FinCon a couple of years ago. And the Charlotte Airport, OG, one of my favorite airports. And the NASCAR Hall of Fame is there. Which is your favorite Hall of Fame also. So that works. Which is a great Hall of Fame. Good stuff. Thanks for that. And Becca, mom's so proud she's got that on the fridge. And lastly, if you are someone who's thinking, you know what, I'm not writing this thing out as well as I should be financially, uh, definitely there's a much bigger issue on the on the health front. But if financially it's not going the way that you want, you think you can do better and want better help in your corner, OG and his team are taking clients through this, still having, well, having more meetings, frankly, than normal. So if that's you, head to stackybenjamins.com forward slash OG. Uh, for a link to OG and his team's calendar. All right, that's going to take care of it for today. Doug's got all the thank yous. Doug, what should we have learned today? Yeah, sure, Joe. I'll just stop my patrol of the Kalahari so I can tell everybody what they should have learned today. Like, I got nothing better to do. I got a kingdom I got to rule here, man. All right, fine. Hey, first, take a lesson from John Johnson. People can tell any story with data if they spin it the right way. It's important to think logically to avoid getting misled with charts and graphs. Second, lots of companies will be hit hard by the COVID-19 outbreak. Take a lesson from this situation to make sure that you have security, regardless of the circumstances. But the big takeaway, never, ever ever, ever, ever tell Joe's mom her spirit animal is an elephant. Hey, I, I didn't say you looked like an elephant. I didn't say that. I said you had the memory of an elephant. Oh, God. Oh, my God. She's got a memory like an elephant. I am never living this down. I am so screwed. 
Thanks to John Johnson for stopping by the basement. You can learn more about John by checking out his company, Edgeworth Economics, or by heading to our show notes page. This show is created by Joe Saul Cihai, produced by Taylor Stevens, and engineered by the amazing Steve Stewart. Online, visit us on Twitter at SBenjamin'sCast or on our Facebook page. I'm Joe's mom's neighbor, Doug, and I really thought doing these credits completely naked would have been a lot more fun than it actually was. SB Podcasts may receive payment on the show from sponsors and guests in the form of books, giveaway items, discounts, or other remunerations. That's a big word. There's no way you take advice from these dorks, but like Joe's mom always says, don't take advice from people you don't know. This show is for entertainment purposes only. And before making any financial decisions, consult with a real financial advisor. So I'm the honey badger, and I can't believe you've never seen this video. This is a video of a honey badger, and I think it's really great. This is the honey badger. Watch it run in slow motion. It's pretty badass. Look, it runs all over the place. Whoa, watch out, says that bird. Ew, it's got a snake. Oh, it's chasing a jackal. Oh my gosh. Oh, the honey badgers are just crazy. The honey badger has been referred to by the Guinness Book of World Records as the most fearless animal in all of the animal kingdom. It really doesn't give a If it's hungry, it's hungry. Ew, what's that in its mouth? Oh, it's got a cobra? Oh, it runs backwards? Now watch this. Look, a snake's up in the tree. Honey badger don't care. Honey badger don't give a It just takes what it wants. Whenever it's hungry, it just... Ew, and it eats snakes? Oh my god, watch it dig. Look at that digging. The honey badger is really pretty badass. They have no regard for any other animal whatsoever. Look, and it's just grunting and, ew, eating snakes. Ew, what's that, a mouse? Oh, that's nasty. Oh, they're so nasty. Oh, look, it's chasing things and eating them. The honey badgers have a fairly long body, but a distinctly thick set, broad shoulders, and, you know, their, their skin is loose, allowing them to move about freely, and they twist around. Now look, here's a house full of bees. You think the honey badger cares? It doesn't give a shit. It goes right into the house to bees to get some larva. How disgusting is that? It eats larva. Ew, that's so nasty. But look, the honey badger doesn't care. It's getting stung like a thousand times. It doesn't give a shit. It just, it's hungry. It doesn't care about being stung by bees. Nothing can stop the honey badger when it's hungry. Nothing can stop the honey badger. It doesn't care. Does Mrs. OG say that about you? When, when yeah. you're, when you, when when you're the, sitting there at hangry? dinner... You're sitting there at dinner. She's like, "Ooh, the honey badger eats whatever it wants. It doesn't care. It dives into the mashed potatoes.
It doesn't care. <laughs> or I do you enjoy that? Or, or, or do you say that to her? Yeah. Right. She's like, so, oh, gee, what do you want for dinner? Honey badger don't care. Honey badger eats whatever it wants. <laughs> I, I, I dare you to do that. I, yeah, I will <laughs> challenge accepted. Just, just keep your, keep your recorder on so we can hear it. I want to hear her reply and just do, let's do the thing like they do on, uh, on TV, that group of guys. What's a group of guys where they do the dares all the time and they send a couple of them out and they got to keep a straight face and pull off the, pull off the stunt. I don't know. I don't know that show. No. Oh my God. Oh, it's so funny. Oh, and I can't remember. Somebody's going to write in and tell us what the name of the show is. But anyway, it's this group of friends and they, they basically, you know, they got like the little earpiece in and, and they have to say, like they said, they send some guy into a restroom at an Italian restaurant and they have a video camera set up. And every time somebody comes down the hall to use the restroom, the dude's got to pop out and make up an excuse why the people can't go into the, into the restroom. So he comes out. Yeah. You don't want to go in there. I just, I got to tell you, I, I just did something horrible in there. And then the next time he's like, oh, there's a fight going on. You, 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 don't, you don't want any piece of that. But he's got to have a different thing every time and see how many people in a row he can get to not go in the bathroom. You need to do that. Just have your phone, have the recorder running. And I want you to tell Mrs. OG, like get her talking about dinner and then tell her that the honey badger don't care. I'll try. I'll do my best. Let's, let's see if we get that recorded. That'll be awesome. Well, stackers, the show is over, but the party is just beginning here. You know why? Because it's Military Appreciation Month, and we are giving out shout-outs to all of our friends who have served in the military. And let's point uh, the finger right here at our good friend OG, who spent time in the military. And of course, we know what a giver he is, even when he pretends like he's being uh, Mr. Surly. Navy Federal offers member-only exclusive rates, discounts, and tools to empower their members to help them reach their goals. Visit NavyFederal.org slash celebrate, and you'll see all their Military Appreciation Month offers and other Navy Federal offers. They've got all kinds of resources on their site, like Best Cities After Service to help veterans transition to civilian life and Best Careers for Military Spouses to support military families. So much going on. Just head over to NavyFederal.org slash celebrate. Take a look at all the Military Appreciation Month offers and their usual offers. Navy Federal, our members are the mission. Navy Federal is insured by NCUA, Equal Housing Lender.